This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. Another kind of milestone here on Play-By-Play Cast. We're going to go in, in increments of five. This is our 15th episode, so we made it this far. <laughs> Confetti balls. Uh, thanks for uh, downloading, subscribing, joining us once again here on a Friday mid-morning. Usually we're here first thing in the morning Friday, but... Uh, I'll be honest, I, I left one of the memory sticks at work uh, last night, so uh, we're, we're a little bit delayed today. But uh, thanks, as always, for joining us. Uh, clicking subscribe, download. Um, if you enjoy the podcast, uh, rating it as well, because uh, iTunes likes that kind of thing, as we've said a couple of times uh, here on the podcast. So uh, if you want to throw a star or two our way or something of that nature, uh, always much appreciated as well. Unless you're listening to this in the car, in which case, don't do that, because it is not safe. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the podcast as well, uh, please feel free to do so. Uh, for those of you that have reached out uh, in the past, uh, really great to hear from you, and uh, great to know that, uh, A, people listen, which is cool, because that makes this at least uh, a little more worthwhile, certainly, a lot more worthwhile, uh, and then B, uh, good to know that uh, it's impactful or there's uh, good information for uh, other people out there as well. Uh, I know doing this has actually been uh, really fun and informative for me. Glad that it's been um, fun and in- informative for other people uh, out there in this industry as well. Uh, it's also been humbling as well because I got a message last week that uh, that welcomed me to 2016. Apparently, I'm behind the times. Uh, I didn't have the Bushnell binoculars as we talked about last week. I finally have those. They are phenomenal. Used them again last week. Um, apparently everybody already has those, so last week's little PSA was pointless. Um, and, and apparently everybody else has also used Amazon. Um, that was a new thing for me last week. I I like to go to stores. I just I like to buy it and take it home with me. Um, but yeah, I, I apparently apparently I'm an old fogey with that, uh, which is actually probably true. So, uh, but get that out of the way. But uh. Yeah, that's beside the point. Uh, today's guest is a really good one and a really cool one. Uh, his name is Joe Davis. He works for Fox Sports. Uh, he also works for the Los Angeles Dodgers, uh, is their television announcer, doing games that Vin Scully did not do this past year. And then next year, uh, the heir apparent uh, to Vin Scully. And it's fairly timely that we've got Joe on, and it just kind of worked out that way. Because this is the, the home stretch here for Vin. Uh, he's going to call his last game at Dodger Stadium uh, Sunday, actually, I believe, against the Dodgers, or uh, obviously for the Dodgers, against the Rockies. And then uh, his final broadcast will be October 2nd, which in a very, it's almost kind of creepy, uh, but serendipitous way, 80 years to the day that he fell in love with baseball. If you haven't seen the story, Vin Scully, growing up in New York, was a New York Giants fan and went to a World Series game on October 2nd, 1936. And 80 years to the day 
from that date when he fell in love with baseball, he will finish his broadcasting career October 2nd, 2016 between the Los Angeles Dodgers and San Francisco Giants. 80 years to the day. He fell in love with baseball at a Giants game. He will end his career at a Giants game. It's weird how those things work out, but really kind of cool as well. Uh, There's going to be all sorts of different ways to follow Vin Scully also. So if you're not a Los Angeles guy, certainly if you've got, um, you know, MLB Network TV or the the MLB, I don't know what it's called off the top of my head, but the pass that allows you to listen to all the games, uh, you can catch Vin. Um, But certainly there's going to be some other ways to listen to Vin Scully's final broadcast and watch Vin Scully's uh, final broadcast here uh, over the next couple of weeks as people uh, commemorate the career certainly that he's had, what he's meant to this industry and uh, what he's meant to baseball. And for honest, uh, in in all honesty, what he's meant to kind of America and Americana and American culture. Uh, So uh, congratulations to Vin Scully, certainly. And uh, hopefully he enjoys his retirement as much as uh, we've all gotten to enjoy him uh, for the last 67 years since he's been a, uh, since he's been a broadcaster. Um, Joe Davis though, on the podcast this week and, I made no secret of it before. We would try to stay ahead in, in interviewing our guests so I don't get caught up and it's a Thursday and I don't have a guest and then we're in trouble. Uh, so this interview was actually taped, I think, three weeks ago with Joe Davis. And just being in the shoot, it winds up coming out today. So, it, again, just kind of perfect timing. Uh, Joe, and we, we talk a lot about Vin Scully here off the top, uh, but Joe's not had a ton of opportunities to interact with Vin because of the fact, and, and he'll touch on this, obviously Joe is on the road and Vin is, uh, for the most part, at home. Um, but Joe has had several interactions with Vin Scully, most certainly. Uh, the most memorable of which uh, has been written about when Joe first got the job, Vin Scully called him and left a voicemail. And that voicemail is where we start our conversation with Joe Davis because uh, that voicemail lives on forever in the Davis household, and uh, it's a really cool story uh, that Joe Davis shares with us here to start off his conversations, Vin Scully, baseball broadcasting, and much more with Joe Davis here on Play by Playcast. It is, uh, it, it was incredible getting the voicemail to begin with, just, you know, I almost dropped the phone when he, <laughs> when, I, when I pressed play and heard it was him, um, but it's incredible, I mean, he's the same same friendly, engaging voice you hear on TV. It's the same guy when you talk to him on the phone. So I was, I, I honestly don't remember a ton from our short phone conversation there because I almost went into like a state of shock when we, when we uh, finally hooked up on the phone and chatted, but pretty darn special. That's for sure. And actually my wife had the voicemail that he left put into so recording of it put into a little teddy bear with a Dodger jersey on it and you squeeze the bear's belly and it plays Vin's message so I've uh, I've got that commemorated that way I'd said to her just kind of uh, jokingly man I wish there was a way to like box this voicemail up and you know put it on a shelf and save it forever and then a couple weeks later it was my birthday and she uh she, I pulled this bear out of a bag, and I was like, oh, cool, a bear with a Dodger jersey on it. And she's like, I didn't get you a teddy bear for your birthday. It's sweet. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, pretty special gift. I was just going to say, can you go all, like, 
uh, broadcaster geek on me and, and did you save it? And that is such a better story than what I was expecting to hear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I'm, I'm the geekiest of the broadcaster geeks. So I wanted to come up with some way to be able to, you know, to, to make it like a tangible thing beyond just hitting a button on my phone to show people. Uh, how many times have you squeezed it? Hmm, good question. <laughs> uh, probably 30 times when, you, when you're talking about showing different people. Fair, and, that's fair. Um, yeah, I can't say that I like sit around by myself <laughs> in the house and squeeze it just to hear it, but I've shown quite a few people that have been over to the house. It's okay if you do, though, by the way. You don't, you can, well, we'll forgive you. But, uh, oh, yeah, appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Um, what's the what's the whole thing been like? Uh, not just the Major League Baseball side of things, but to be around the fanfare of his finale and his farewell and to, to be a part of what's baseball history, Dodger history, what's broadcast history, and, and kind of to be a footnote uh, in all of that and experience it firsthand. We rode games. That's given just kind of a natural distance between us. And... You know, so I, I haven't necessarily lived it up close, but obviously any time I'm talked about in regards to the Dodger job, the context is that I'm doing the games Vin's not, and I'm the one following Vin in the position. So, you know, there's that obvious natural connection that any time anytime I have a conversation with somebody comes up and it's, you know, I, I knew, I knew what I was, what I was getting into and that. You know, he's been the one voice that people have heard there since 1958. And I remember growing up a big Cub fan. I remember when Ron Sano passed away a few years ago, how devastated I was. And Ron Sano is far from Vin Scully as far as on-air ability. And I'm sure Ron Sano would have told you that in a heartbeat, too. And Ron Sano was only there for a couple decades, not for the entirety of the, the <laughs> franchise's history in the city. So I, you know, I remember how hard that was moving on from having Ron Sano on all the broadcasts that I was listening to. So, you know, I can, I can only imagine what it's like for the people that have been Dodger fans their entire life, having to adjust to a new voice and um, having to think about life after Ben. Um, but like I said, I, I knew kind of the context of the whole thing when I was getting into the job. And people have been so amazing to me on social media and seeing them around the ballpark and, you know, near the team hotel and everything. People have been so gracious. Dodger fans have making me feel welcome and, um, you know, making the, the inherent pressure in the situation seem a lot less. And, and, you know, the, the comfort that people have given me just by welcoming me has kind of nullified any bit of pressure that, that would be, potentially overwhelming was there any pressure at all i mean i i mean i i'd seen and and everybody always says these things like i i have to be me i can't be him i have to do you know i'm I'm not necessarily following him as in uh, as much as i'm just being me and i'm the next Mm -hmm. guy up so to speak uh but in the back of your mind was there ever or is there ever still the inherent somebody somewhere is comparing me to vin scully yeah, of course, of course. And I think that what I'm finding is that the the people that have been lucky enough to listen to Vin their entire lives, Vin's style, and especially lately, the, the last couple decades where he's been solo, it's so uniquely Vin 
And you know, when you're when you're a fan of a baseball team, that's that's the voice you listen to. You really don't listen to a ton of other baseball broadcasters, right? So what a lot of Dodger fans are used to is the solo booth is Vin telling incredible stories. I think he's the greatest storyteller that ever lived, regardless of baseball broadcaster or not. And Vin structuring that it's a solo booth and that he calls every pitch. So the I would say the main criticisms that I hear from people are directly related to them being used to that. You know, hearing hearing that style of broadcast, even though it's so unique and only Vin can pull it off, that's what they're used to. That's what they've heard since 1958, if they've been alive that long, or since whenever they were born. Um, so I, I don't know if it's as much pressure to to do that or to try to be Vin. I see that people love Vin for this, the the humanizing side of things and his storytelling, and the fact that he believes that you know, people aren't going to care about the player until they care about the person, and that it is a person, and it isn't a jersey number and a slash line. It's a human. So more than again, more than feeling pressure to be Vin, I think I've learned from number one, listening to Vin, and number two, seeing why people love Vin to incorporate more of that. But I, I wouldn't say that I felt pressure necessarily to change like the structure of my call or the way that I call the game as much as it is just being conscious of trying to add in some more of the human side of things. Have you, and maybe maybe that's it, but have you learned anything uh, from him either directly or, or indirectly from the people that have just been around him or, or things you've heard or stories you've heard or the way that he does things? Uh, has anything rubbed off on you in the last six, seven months? Yeah, I'd say that's, that's the main thing there is just uh, realizing how, how uh, much people enjoy hearing the human interest stories. And I think as far as off the air. And again, I don't spend a ton of time around Vin just because of the differences in our schedules. But as much as you hear about from the people that know him and that are around him, you hear as much about how good he is on the air. You hear as much about how good of a person he is off the air as you do as, as good of a person as, or as good of an announcer as he is on the air. So, um, you know, not that I, not that I have never, try to be a good guy but when you hear about somebody who's been doing this for 67 years and is still loved by everybody and still you know refers to everybody by name and you know that these people look forward to their to their cafeteria bump-ins with them each day that's an inspiration too i think that you can learn from that no matter what line of work you're in and um, no matter how nice or mean you are i think that that's a great example to to try and follow. So I'd say the storytelling on the air and uh, just a, you know, a reminder how important it is to be a good guy off the air. Have you learned how he finds his stories? Because I feel like that's part of the mysticism of Vin Scully too, is that he's able to unearth things that nobody in their right mind ever has found or thought to found uh, or thought to find uh, in, in years previous about guys. Yeah, I mean, I think the the first thing is that he's been around for 67 years. That helps. So he's accumulated these incredible <laughs> stories, right? Yeah. Um, so he's got a lifetime full of stories to tell. I think that as far as the current players, I think that the stuff that, that he's touching on is it's probably stuff all of us could find just because of how 
you know, how accessible that kind of stuff is in this day and age. I, I can't imagine prepping before the internet. I know I sound like <laughs> such a, uh, such a 28 year old saying that, but, um, I think that you can find a lot of that stuff out there if you really search. And then it's just a matter of your philosophy being one to incorporate those kinds of stories, you know, which are, are kind of off the beaten path of calling a baseball game. Some of the stuff that some of the stories you'll hear him tell, you just don't really hear anybody else tell because of what we talked about philosophically, stylistically, he's so different than anybody who's doing it right now. I think the stuff that you can't expect anyone in this day and age to know or find is that stuff that he's seen. You know, he saw the 1955 Brooklyn Dodgers <laughs> on the World Series. He was there. So it's that kind of stuff that, yeah, I can go read about and study and, and you know, become a uh, a history junkie in Dodger baseball and baseball in general, but nothing can replace living it the way he has for so long. I want to come back to uh circle back to the Dodgers uh, job and the Dodgers stuff with you. But if I can, uh, can we go way back to the beginning? Um, when you were in high school, uh, it was another podcast. I think I, I heard that you were on uh, where you talked about being recruited to Beloit college to play football and the coach had promised that you could do the play-by-play for basketball at Beloit as well. Uh, how does that pitch get put together, and, and what are you thinking when that's what they're telling 17-year-old Joe Davis? <laughs> um, so I, I, I made it. I knew I was lucky that I knew at that stage exactly what I wanted to do. I've known for a long time, so. As you go through these recruiting processes, you get to know the coaches, and they get to know you, and they uh, they knew the the way to my heart professionally was to get me those opportunities, and um, that was you know, with other factors the the chance to play right away and to get a good education in general, and I liked the guys that were there already. You know, you combine those things with a promise to be able to do be the basketball announcer right away, and as you know, as a Syracuse guy, that's that's rare to be able to get those kind of reps the day you walk on campus at a lot of other places. So um, you combine all those factors. Yeah, I was all in on it. I mean, I, there were other places that, that I was getting recruited that used it as part of the pitch, but I guess nobody went that aggressive down that route. Uh, John Carroll was one of the schools that was on my final two or three in Ohio and they had a good radio station and everything, but nobody came out, came right out and said, look, not only is the starting quarterback job, probably yours, uh, but the starting <laughs> men's broadcast, men's basketball broadcasting job is yours. So it was it was a hard combo to turn down. Yeah, I got to see if like if Nick Saban hears about that, he's going to start offering somebody a, a broadcast job as well for something. Yeah, yeah. and he's going to be kicking himself that he didn't go that route with me, or else I would have signed with old Nick. And the entire course of the Rolling Tide would have been different historically. You're right. For better, yeah, or worse. probably, yeah, probably not for the better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's interesting. I had the same conversation with Adam Amin um, in that he went to Valpo, um, and it's not necessarily the 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 name that comes to mind when people think broadcasting schools. Um, what did going to a place like Beloit do for you, from a strictly from a broadcasting standpoint, though, being at a smaller school and and uh, giving you those opportunities early? Uh, and, and also, how did you go about kind of constructing your own uh, feedback mechanisms and those things to get better consistently day in and day out? 
Yeah, so because it wasn't a broadcasting school, I had zero competition for any kind of broadcasting-related opportunities that might have been out there. What it was was a small school, small liberal arts school, where the faculty is really involved and genuinely cares to help you do whatever it is you want to do. So not only did I not have competition to get the reps that existed, if there was anything I could think of that might help me as far as hands-on reps, I had somebody there who was willing to make that help me make that happen. So I had a TV show on the local access station. I had a, a radio show, uh, a sports broadcast or a sports talk radio show on the you know, student radio station when there had been nothing like that in place. Um, I had an independent study with a theater arts um, department head on improving my voice. So, I mean, you name it. Like, I I just had so many different things where it's far from a broadcasting school, but what it is is being a small school, being a small liberal arts school, it kind of was whatever I wanted it to be. And so I made it into one for myself. And at the same time, I was really aggressive networking, probably too aggressive looking back on it. I was probably a huge pain in the butt to people that I was reaching out to and trying to establish connections with. I was really aggressive with that. Anytime I was, anytime I had time, I was trying to find people to email online just to make contact with and eventually turn into, uh, you know, grow some relationships where I could get feedback. And um, so I was, I was aggressive in finding opportunities at school and I was aggressive in making relationships outside of school that could help get me feedback and, and help build that network. Tell me more about the theater arts study. So the, the independent study. Yeah. Yeah. So she, uh, she was my advisor. I had a communications degree, but the communications department, uh, the communications major fell under the theater arts department. So that goes to show you how, how broadcast the communications degree was. But anyway, she, uh, you know, she's a very theater arts lady, whatever that means. She, you know, she had, she'd written plays. She was, she directed the plays and everything that were, that were at the school and had, you know, she very accomplished theater arts professional. She was a, a thespian. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I would say so. And I, I think that what I didn't realize was that part of that, a very important skill in that realm is being able to project your voice for performance. Um, and it's obviously different than you're projecting your voice on the air, but a lot of the same principles apply and in, in trying to get the most out of your voice. So I knew nothing about voice for stage. She knew nothing about play by play broadcasting or sports for that matter. But a lot of the principles crossed over. And so we did all kinds of vocal exercises. Um, I had a couple of different books that I had read and we designed this whole independent study curriculum to, you know, help me as, as much as it was improve my voice. It was to learn about how the voice works and learn about how to manipulate my voice and how to breathe better. And, um, yeah, a lot of breathing techniques, a lot of breathing exercises. So there's, there's still stuff that I, lot of stuff that I use today, both consciously and probably subconsciously that I learned from that independent study with her. Who were your, uh, your influences? Who'd you kind of look up to at that point when you're, I mean, really 
more hands-on than any time else, I would imagine, in your life, kind of molding a, a career. Um, who'd you look to? What kind of people did you try to emulate? And um, how did that whole process play out? Well, as a Cubs fan, I loved Pat Hughes on Cubs radio. Um, he was a guy that I listened to probably more than anyone through my, I guess you'd call them formative years as a, as a young broadcaster. Um, with that, Len Casper on Cubs TV, listened to a lot. And the guy calling the biggest games when you and I were growing up, Joel, was always Joe Buck yep. on Fox calling the Super Bowl and the World Series. And he was my favorite national guy that, you know, growing up, I wanted to be him. And so I took a lot stylistically from the way he calls a game. I don't think that there's anybody out there on a national level right now that um, captions things and captures moments better than Joe does. So um, little pieces here and there from a lot of different people, but I'd say those would be the main guys. Yeah, I mean, you've definitely got some Joe Buck in you. Um, I think people would probably say or see. uh, What do you... What did you like about him? What do you like about him? I know he's a polarizing guy for some reason. I, I like him a lot. Um, I don't know why people don't, but but why were you so drawn to him um, in your in your formative years? Yeah, first of all, the whole polarizing thing, I I, I, don't, I just I don't, don't get it. it. Yeah, I guess it's I guess it's a product of the social media day and age where it's popular to hate on him. It's like the cool thing to do Fair, yeah. on social media. Um, and it's just so un, unfounded. And he's talked about how he had, how when he first started, he tried to be Pat Summerall. He wasn't himself. He tried to be very measured and calculated. And one of the big criticisms of him was that he didn't get excited enough. And he's acknowledged that that's probably because he was trying to be Pat, who hardly ever raised his tone or his voice at all. Um, and, and he's changed that he is much more excitable now, but it's just this narrative that's developed that Joe Buck doesn't care or he doesn't get excited or Joe Buck is smug or like all this stuff that it's just this thing that's kind of snowballed and it's just what people accept. And it's a cool thing to, to rip on him. There's that. And then there's the fact that the games that he's doing are the biggest games where fans uh, tempers and everything are at their peak. They're, they're at their most sensitive in these biggest games. And so not only is it popular to hate on him, but their fans are probably at their most vulnerable moments in the games that he's doing. So I think it's a little bit of both of those things. And everybody's watching as opposed to yeah, just a regular right. game where you're hit and miss kind of who your crowd is. Uh-huh. Uh, but why, why him? What drew you to him? Um, I, I think that on a basic level, it was just that he was doing the biggest games. Sure. And so he was the one that, you know, when you're watching the big games as a kid, he was always the one doing it. So just by osmosis, probably at first. And then like I kind of mentioned, I, I just don't, I, I think he's the very best there is at on television telling me more than what I'm seeing just with a simple line giving context to what I'm seeing. You know, so he's not he's not telling me it's a it's a pop fly or a pop up on the right side of the infield, second baseman Chase Utley under it makes the catch. He's telling me something about uh popped up and on one pitch Clayton Kershaw gets the first out of the second to help manage that pitch count 
or you know, that's just a random example. But he's he's throughout the game giving exa- or giving uh, context to plays as opposed to just calling play by play in the traditional sense of the plays. So that goes throughout the game, and then in the very biggest moments, he's able to capture those very biggest moments incredibly and even back when people hated on him for not being excitable enough there are so many incredible calls like i think back to the 2004 alcs the red sox yankees alcs where the red sox come from behind to go to the world series there are so many amazing calls in that series um like ortiz hits a home run after midnight a walk-off home run and he you know, we've censored him. We'll see you tomorrow night. Yep. Pay homage to his father um, in the St. Louis, Texas World Series. But back in 2004 in the ALCS, Ortiz hits a home run in the 14th inning or something like that, and it's already past midnight. And as the ball goes out, he says, we'll see you later tonight. Yep. Because it's technically already turned to Wednesday or whatever. So just brilliant things like that. Ortiz has a walk-off single on that series, and um, he says Damon – Browning third, he can keep running home and he can keep running to New York. Just these brilliant, memorable lines that capture the moment and become part of really the history of that moment. I don't think that anybody does it as well as he does. Um, and, and that's sacrilege to say as a guy that, that is calling the same team as Vin Scully. But I'm saying on I'm saying on a national level right now, and while you and I were growing up, nobody does it the way he does. Where do you think that comes from? Because I think we as broadcasters always, you know, we're always trying to, you're always trying to find the right words for the biggest moments. Um, and I think sometimes a lot of people, especially young, can overthink that. Uh, and they wind up with something that can be too hokey or too kitschy or cliche or sometimes the complete opposite of that where you're just too, there, there's nothing there. Um, where do you think uh, he gets that? And then in, in turn, how do you in yourself try to produce something similar the best you can to capture those biggest moments in the exact right way? I think the hardest thing is that how do you get good at it without having those big moments? And those big moments only come every so often. If they came often, they wouldn't be big moments. And so it's a catch-22. How do you get good at that without ever experiencing that? So I think that there's something to be said for being in the right place at the right time to experience those big moments. I think that there is a, an ability to anticipate the moments coming and being ready for the moments and not having a canned line in your head, but having the context of the situation in your head. And then the other part is, is the most difficult. And that, and that is, I think that you either have it or you don't You have the ability to capture those moments on a whim. You can have the, anybody can consciously anticipate the big moments happening and can have the context in their head. Like I, like my second point was, I think it's important to do, but then to actually use that context to capture a moment that you can't predict, you either have that knack or you don't. And Joe definitely has. Want to, uh, if I can go back to, uh, go back to the career path with you. Um, you were, uh, you're Apple, what you graduate. Uh, did you get, um, Montgomery right out of college? Mm-hmm. Yep. I actually, uh, stepped out of a, English class to take a call to accept the job. 
that's not the worst reason to step out of class. That's no, yeah, no. I actually, I had a job lined up with. You remember the whole fiasco at the Lake County Fielders, where the kid quit on the air because yes. Yeah, <laughs> that was going to be my job. Before or after him? Um, before. So, let's see. Summer of two thousand nine, I did the Schaumburg Flyers in the independent Northern league. That was the summer before my last semester of college. So I finished college in one semester, my senior year. So finished after three and a half years because I knew I wanted to be able to take a baseball job. And that's hard to do if you're not finished with school until May. So I, I, I sped everything up in the years leading into my graduation to make sure I was finished in December and ready to take a full season gig. And so I had that, Gig with Schaumburg in 2009, where it was technically an unpaid internship, but I was their main radio guy, and it was an incredible experience. And the owner of that team was launching the Lake County Fielders for the following summer. And much of my 2009 season in Schaumburg was spent trying to impress that owner enough where he would hire me to be the inaugural voice of his new franchise that he was building the ballpark for and launching for 2010 summer. And, you know, as you know, it's like, it's so hard to get a lead gig at any point, let alone coming right out of college, regardless of the level. So I was all about getting this job and I had this job lined up and uh, let's see. So I, I think I went out to, breakfast or lunch or something with the owner before I went back to, uh, in August, went back to Beloit for my senior season of football. And he, he said, yeah, you know, you, uh, you're our guy. Was, I was going to share it with somebody else, a local, a local guy in Chicago, who's going to do some of the games. We were going to share the games, but it's going to be great. I was going to be a salaried employee and everything. So I had this job set up after college. It was perfect, but I still decided to send my stuff off to the Montgomery job when I saw that come open and thankfully landed it um, out of, you know, just being lucky to have an organization that was willing to take a chance on a young guy that kind of set me ahead of the curve on everything, I guess, to start, but I can't imagine how my career would have been different had I taken the Lake County job, which, you know, a year later had the kid quitting on the air because the owner wasn't paying anybody and they're playing on like a literally you're like a, a American Legion field and with these bleachers they brought in and the stadium never got funding and the team folded. Who knows where I would be at this point? Uh, probably somewhere similar, but it's, it's neat to think about. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice of you to say, but I, I don't know. That would have been a pretty low point. I, yeah. Yeah. That's, I, you know, in some ways, I can't fault the kid. Um, in some no. ways, I can, but yeah, yeah, no, he's yeah. <laughs> uh, how did uh, how did you progress from that point? I mean, where did where did the ball kind of rolling where things really started to kick for you? Because um, I know I had read you were trading stuff with, I guess, Mike Moore at ESPN, um, just mm-hmm. getting advice and things like that. And and how did how did that develop, or or was that what developed from? Uh, an educational thing to uh hey why don't we we got these couple of games for you let's let's give this a shot so a couple of pieces of stupid luck um really helped accelerate things for me and you know i, I don't like to take take all the credit from the the hard work that it takes to do well in this business and everything and just attribute it all 
to luck, but a couple of really lucky things happened. So my first week on the job in Montgomery, I got an email from this random fan who was tuning in and, you know, enjoying the broadcast or whatever. And you, you open up the, the, you give the email address on the air to have people email you. And usually it's parents or whatever, girlfriends that say, Hey, I'm listening here to, to so-and-so. And then I had this random guy, this guy named Dan Quinn, who sent me a couple emails during the opening homestand. And then a week into the season. So I'm a week into my first double a job. I get this long email from him. And it's like a critique of my first week on the job. And I'm thinking, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> Turns out it was, he he worked at ESPN in the PR department. And he wasn't anybody that could like, hire me. He didn't have any pull as far as talent. ESPN's a gigantic place where, you know, there are only so many people that can actually be a mover as far as helping you get gigs. But anyways, he was on injured leave from work. He had heard his leg playing pick up soccer or something like that. So was at home killing time and had read about the Montgomery biscuits in the newspaper and thought that's a cool name. I should get on their website and buy a hat. So he gets on the website and happens to see the games going on, clicks the listen live link. Like I said, likely heard and uh, wound up becoming a big fan of the team, traveled down to Montgomery later that summer to see the park and, we became friends and not a ton came of it just because there was no really natural progression for anything to come of it. But he said something about getting me guests for my pregame show. And I was like, well, Dane, you know, half joking with him. I don't, I don't need guests for the pregame show, but it'd be sweet if you could introduce me to somebody that could help me get a foot in the door, uh, your company. And he said, really? Yeah. Be happy to. And so that was Mike Moore that he introduced me to. And I eventually went and met with Mike Moore in Charlotte at ESPNU. And again, at that point, there wasn't really any, any work for him to give me, but it was a foot in the door and it led to some work with ESPN three. And at the same time, around the same time, summer of 2011. So my second season in Montgomery, as I was starting to get these contacts in television, because I knew that was a route that I wanted to go. Um, and, and focused a lot of my efforts as soon as I got to Montgomery on building that TV resume and setting myself up to be able to take TV jobs. But summer of 2011, Matt Moore, who's now on the hated Giants, uh, pitched a no-hitter for us yep. for the Montgomery Biscuits. And I sent the, I was really happy with my call the ninth inning, so I decided to send that around to different all my different contacts. And one of them is Brian Anderson, the Brewers TV voice, and does Turner TBS stuff. And he liked it enough to send it to his agency. And the next day I heard from the guy that is now my agent, uh, if management in New York, that he wanted to set up a meeting. And I had been talking to a few other agencies at that point, but I wound up signing with this agency and the relationships they had combined with the relationships I had started to make at ESPN eventually led to a full-time, well, it actually led to an offer from Pac-12 Network when they were launching um, that ESPN didn't want to let me take. You know, it was either ESPN probably would not have given me a full-time contract had I not had this offer from Pac-12 that would have precluded me from doing any ESPN stuff, but they saw the Pac-12 offer. They said, well, we can do better and make you one of our full-time guys that happened in 2012. So I finished out my third season in Montgomery and then 
moved to ESPN on a two-year deal at the end of that third season in Montgomery. What are you thinking as a 25-year-old ESPN broadcaster? Oh, totally, man. I remember my first game on ESPN3. It was a high school football game. And just like holding the microphone with the ESPN mic flag and hearing the ESPN theme music in my headset, you you combine the the fanboy in me with the broadcast dork in me. It was like, that was one of the coolest moments that very first game, just having all those things, you know, all those little stupid little things that if you're not a, if you're not a nerd, you're, you're probably not going to appreciate, but I, I certainly am a broadcast nerd and was all about those little moments. I'm curious. I mean, what, what do you, uh, when you take a step back and I mean, I imagine you're watching your stuff still, fairly regularly as well. Um, what are you looking for? What what have you been looking for, and kind of how has that evolved? Um, what are the most important things to you? So I think at this stage, I feel I feel good about my fundamentals. You know, the, the stuff that you're working on on a daily basis when you're first getting started as far as, you know, the structure of your call. And I think radio is a great foundation to be able to set you up to have a real structurally fundamentally sound play-by-play x's and o's of the play-by-play call for television so i i got to the point i don't i don't know when that was or i'm still working on that but i got to the point where i was really happy with you know the fundamentals and then the fundamental me being so fundamentally sound almost got to a point where it became a detriment i think towards the back end of my time at espn and into my first few months at Fox, I would say mostly early on in my time at Fox, I wanted to be so perfect with the fundamentals that I was blocking myself from having any fun. And I, I didn't, I didn't sound like I was having fun on the air. I wasn't making any mistakes. I was pretty damn close to perfect as far as the fundamentals and the facts and everything, but I was so uptight. And so it got to the point where I was so fundamentally sound that it was a problem. So it, I, I had to take a step back and just allow myself to kind of be me, allow myself to have fun on the air. I think that's something that everybody goes through at, at different stages of the early development. But for me, it was when I signed the really first, you know, ESPN was a big break, but the the thing that I think kind of took me to, to a different level was signing the Fox tour. I was doing much more prominent events and everything. And I overthought it probably just, like I said, tried to be too perfect. So as I've you know, allowed myself to be me more, and it certainly helps being on the air every day now with the full-time Dodger job, I think the thing that when I'm going back and listening to myself, what I'm listening for and what I'm, I'm really tweaking and critiquing is how I am in the big moments, like we talked about yep. with Joe Buck earlier. The, not just the big, like, memorable moments, but the big calls within each of every 162 baseball games because for me now and and where I eventually want to be in this business, that's what matters is your ability to hit those big moments and to reach the right levels, the appropriate tone, the appropriate caption. So I'm really hard on myself right now in, in making sure that I'm capturing those moments. It's hard. It's hard to go back and, especially having a baby now and having a wife and uh, having, you know, a lot more like, yeah, real life responsibilities. It's hard to, hard to go back and listen to every pitch like I would in the minors, you know, as I'd be 
doing game notes for that night's game or whatever it may be, go back and listen to the entire previous night and nitpick the fundamentals. I don't have, life just doesn't have, has not left me with enough time for that now. I think that anybody that, that has kids can probably relate to that. But what I'm always doing still every single night is going back and listening to the highlights and remembering how I felt making that call, where I felt my energy was, where I, how I felt my, words were capturing the moment and then cross-referencing that with how it actually translated, how the energy translated, how what I said translated, because I think that's the, that's what really sets the very best guys apart is their ability to, to make the highlight calls. Um, and I, I know that sounds kind of, uh, counterintuitive because don't you remember like when we were first getting started hearing people say, don't put anybody can <laughs> yeah, and anybody can make anybody can nail the highlight call. Let me hear you uh, in a long boring inning, right? Don't you remember yep. that day people would say that? Send me an and inning to a three outs, extent, yeah, and nothing else. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. <laughs> anybody to a certain extent, yes, anybody can sound good in a highlight. But I, I try to you know, take it take it uh, a step beyond that. Like I, I don't want to just sound good, passable on the highlight. I want to be able to really capture moments and be great at those things and i think that uh that's what sets guys apart when you get to a, a stage where you've been doing national games for a while and you know like where i'm at now lucky enough to do a, a big market team like the dodgers that's what can really set you apart is the ability to nail those big calls so that's that's a long answer to your question what am i focusing on now as i'm listening back it's the big moments the big calls the highlights every night no oh, it's interesting too because uh more people than not have actually said that as the answer to that question, which I found, which I found interesting because it jives with that, the awkwardness of, as a young broadcaster, you always are told not to worry about that, like you said, and then it it comes full circle in a way, which is yeah, kind of right. interesting. Um, the only the other thing I wanted to ask you too, and I don't want to take too much more of your time because I, I want to get you back to wife and child, uh, <laughs> and they're tough. <laughs> um, I'd read where you talked about, and this is, I mean, it's a, a, a common thing, but it, it was something you had pointed out elsewhere, was uh, the best play-by-play guys do the best job at drawing the best out of their analysts. What are tools that you've kind of figured out or developed uh, that work best for getting, and I mean, you're lucky in some regards, because now you get to work with Nomar and Oral, um, but getting them in the right situations to say the right things. Uh and and how did that develop when you weren't working with guys of that caliber, so to speak? Yeah, I think that the number one, the number one thing to be able to be good at that is simply listening. And that's so hard. That that was another thing when I was concentrating so intensely on being perfect and being fundamentally sound. I was so focused on what the next words out of my mouth would be that I wasn't a good listener. And it's impossible to be good at teeing those guys up if you're not listening. So I think it's actually a pretty, pretty simple equation of just listening and being able to follow up and take them further and maybe come back to something you hear them say. Maybe you hear them say at the beginning of an at-bat, you know, you, you stay away with breaking balls to this guy and, and, Maybe seven pitches later, he finishes a guy off with a breaking ball away. You want to be able to take him back there um, by saying, and you know, and ultimately he does get him with the breaking ball away, Oral, and that allows Oral to do his thing on 
you know, how he, he teed the, that bat up with that piece of advice for the pitcher. So I think it's a, it's a pretty simple biggest tip for that, for being good with your analysts. And it is listening. Um, I'm not a big fan of straight up asking questions of your analysts. Number one, I think it sounds broadcastery. Yeah, Yeah, it is. Yeah. It sounds like you're trying to be a broadcaster and it puts the analysts in a tough spot where like if they, if they don't specifically, they probably are thinking something a little bit different than the exact answer to the exact question that you ask. So I try to use leading statements where it doesn't sound like they're ignoring my question if they kind of reference my statement and then take it wherever they want. So I try to leave those tee-ups somewhat open-ended for them um, where it doesn't doesn't put them – I don't want to paint them into a corner by asking them questions that require uh, a specific answer. And you, you said it too with Oral and Omar. Those guys are so good that that certainly helps. The better the analyst, the easier it is to tee them up. Uh, where can people find you uh, if they want to watch Joe Davis or anything of that nature? Um, either at the uh, the changing table or the rocking chair, <laughs> typically at this point. Uh, Twitter, Joe underscore Davis. And as far as on the air, Sportsnet LA, a great MLB TV app, which I still use all the time to watch other teams broadcast and keep up with other clubs as we get close to the postseason here and uh then on the fox networks with football getting started up again fs1 and uh, our games are split pretty evenly between fs1 and uh, fox broadcast network so depends on the weekend but um, a few different places that is Joe Davis here on Play by Playcast. A uh, really good guy, first and foremost. Really good broadcaster, uh, which I, I think is second to that. And good dude. Great broadcaster. Um, and uh, glad he took some time to, uh, to talk and share some wisdom and impart some wisdom uh, on us here for the podcast. Uh, certainly you can catch him on FS1 and Fox Sports with uh, college football this fall and then college basketball, certainly, and then Los Angeles Dodgers uh, going forward as well. We talked about Joe Buck in there, too, by the way. There's a lot of Joe Buck in Joe Davis, uh, and I think both of them are very good broadcasters. I don't, I don't know, and Joe touched on this. Like, I, I don't know what the hubbub is with Joe Buck. I think he's great. I really enjoy watching Joe Buck, but I know he's really, for some whatever reason, uh, a polarizing figure uh, in this industry. It'd be great. I'd love to have him on the podcast. Uh, we'll see one day. Uh, Joe, if you were listening, at uh, Buck on Twitter, uh, we'd love to have you on the podcast because uh, I'd love to pick your brain. So uh, we'll see one day. But uh, anyway, many thanks to Joe Davis for uh, for joining us again this week. We're going to go to the college ranks next week. Uh, really good guest. Won't reveal who, uh, but he's fairly new to being a Division One FBS voice. Uh, entered that rank a couple of years ago. I guess if you count this year, a couple of years ago, that might be your hint there. Uh, but we'll have a good conversation about college broadcasting and uh, making your way into college broadcasting as well and things of the like that is next week here on play by playcast in the meantime they're playing the go home music so that is my turn to get up one out of here by the way uh one of the other things i've heard from people uh lately they want to know what the music is this song right here it's a remix of hello by adele because you saw that coming uh it's it's by a, a an artist named marshmallow no w just marshmallow uh it's it's hello by adele 
Uh, that's the to tell you right at the beginning of it. But uh, that's this song. They're playing it. Podcast is over. We'll see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Joe Davis. This is Play by Playcast. Yeah.